Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. When was the last time that you thanked a teacher? This month of May includes Teacher Appreciation Day, and this month's Master's Classic features Michelle Shearer, the 2011 National Teacher of the Year. This interview offers much more than listening and learning from a brilliant teacher. Michelle inspires the teacher, coach, and mentor in all of us. Listen in and share with your friends, then visit mastersbywinclaybaugh.com to sign up for our mailing list. And remember, Masters Podcasts are also available on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify Podcasts. Enjoy this Masters Classic interview. Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here. Welcome to another amazing issue of Masters. And I probably say this about all of them because why would I not want to produce an amazing issue? But this one's going to be amazing. (laughs) And I love that we have such diversity with the people I am so honored to interview lately. And this one is just going to be incredible. I I can't believe I'm sitting here with Michelle Scherer, who is the 2011 National Teacher of the Year. You were the National Teacher of the Year. That's correct. It's great to be here, Wynn. Thanks. Was that ever on a wish list or a bucket list or uh, you know, a goal written on your refrigerator to become National Teacher of the Year? Or did you just do your job and it happened that way? Well, that's the funny thing, Wynn. Uh, before I got all wrapped up in the Teacher of the Year process, I didn't even know there was a Teacher of the Year program. You know, Teachers tend to work in the classroom, focusing on students, doing what they love to do, often very unaware of the awards or opportunities that are out there. And it was actually a, an administrator who came to me and asked me if I would um, put my name in, so to speak, because the faculty had nominated me. And that was really the first time I'd ever heard of it, and that was after 14 years of teaching. Wow. So that, I mean, Teacher of the Year means you went to the White House, you were honored by President Barack Obama, formally presented this National Teacher of the Year at a White House ceremony, uh, and then spent a year traveling nationally and internationally as a spokesperson for public education. So, I mean, that's quite a task, you know, going from the classroom to now all of a sudden you're at the White House. So what was, what was that like? Well, it was a task and it was overwhelming at first, but John Quam is the is the head of the National Teacher of the Year program. And what he always told me was that, Michelle, you're a teacher. You're always a teacher. And I, and I told myself all the time that the key word in National Teacher of the Year is teacher. And I learned to teach in a much bigger classroom. Of course, I was very comfortable in my chemistry classroom. That's what I love. That's what I do. But I began to see everything as a classroom. Sitting on the airplane, the airplane was the classroom. You know, being in an elevator, the elevator is the classroom. And to use every possible opportunity to teach wherever I was and to not just focus on what I had to teach but really to represent all teachers and our common mission. And I think what I learned the most through the process is we're really more similar than we think. Mm. And even though we each have our own niche and our own subject area, we might teach in different areas of the country or around the world, teachers are teachers everywhere and we all share a common mission. Oh my gosh, I love that message that every opportunity is a classroom. Being on an elevator is an opportunity and that, that's a classroom where you have opportunity to teach. And we're all teachers. You know, to ask a thousand people how many of you are teachers, we're all teachers. If you're parents, you're a teacher. If you're a, a neighbor, you're a teacher. So what, what a great message to use that opportunity. And that's something that I didn't even see myself, I think, until I was, you know, thrust into this role, so to speak. 
Uh, again, like you said, we usually have a narrow view of what a teacher is, you know, somebody who stands in a classroom and assigns work and monitors students and so forth. But this opportunity has really expanded my own view about what it means to be a teacher and to communicate the message that, as you said, when everybody is a teacher, everybody has something to teach, everybody has something to learn, and uh, that leads to some pretty amazing possibilities for all of us. Well, let me give our listeners a little bit more information about who you are. Let's see, you, you teach 10th through 12th grade advanced placement chemistry. Oh my gosh, thank goodness I was not in your classroom <laughs> because you would, oh my goodness. But you began your career in education as a volunteer in the classroom for deaf students during your college years. Uh, again, we, we've talked about the fact that you are honored at the White House in a White House ceremony. Spent a year on the road after that, which we're going to get into. You're passionate about partnering with parents, community members, business leaders, and educators to eliminate achievement gaps to empower students of all backgrounds and ability levels with the knowledge, skills, and habits of mind they need to succeed in school, which I have questions on all of those things, okay? You hold a a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Princeton University, a master's degree in deaf communication from McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, fluent in American Sign Language and certified in special education. Uh, Michelle taught for years at the Maryland School for the Deaf. You are currently teaching uh, over 80 students in advanced placement chemistry at Urbana High School in Frederick County, Maryland. You know, we have a a school there in Frederick. Anyway, another thing. Yes, I do know that. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. Okay, they'll, they'll, do, they'll do your hair. They'll take really good yes, care of you. Yes, yes. And you also mentor new teachers while continuing to speak on educational issues. In 2009, Maryland recipient of Siemens Award for Advanced Placement Teaching. And the 2010 Frederick County Teacher of the Year and 2011 Maryland Teacher of the Year. So, again... You've got the degrees, you have the accolades, and you have the trophies, so to speak, to prove that you know what you're doing, but it's much more than that. It's, it's about having a, the right heart. It is. And when, I tell you, really to understand any teacher's story, I think you have to go all the way back. You know, people want to connect the dots. How do you get from chemistry at Princeton University to a classroom with deaf students to National Teacher of the Year? And I have to be honest and say that I was not encouraged to be a teacher. What were you encouraged to be? Well, I was a great student. I was into science and math. I was a valedictorian in my high school. And I always wanted to be a teacher. Again, you would have ignored me in the high school (laughs) hallways because I was nowhere near any of that stuff. Well, I don't know about that. I was involved in a lot of activity. I I was into sports. I was into music. I was into drama. I was into everything. But because I was into everything, okay, people would say, but Michelle, you could do anything. Right? You can do anything that you want. And people would say, oh, you know, we'll just give it a while and see what's possible. You know, you know teaching's great, but maybe you, know, you connect with something else. You know, my mother was an elementary school music teacher. A lot of school teachers in my family. My father is very uh, strongly supportive of education. I just always thought a teacher would be an amazing thing to me. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to Princeton, when I enrolled at Princeton University, then the conversation really changed. And people said, well, you know, Michelle, I mean, those who can do... And those who can't teach. I hate that. But we all philosophy. know that. But oh, we but all... I just want to hit whoever created. The, the sad thing is that we can all finish that phrase. 
You know, you st started to shake your head the minute I started. And so I heard, you know, those who can do and those who can't teach. And then I heard more specifics. Uh, one of my roommates said, well, Michelle, you wouldn't just come to Princeton just to be a teacher. And people asked me what my parents thought. What do your parents think about you coming here, spending all this money just to be a teacher in the end? And actually, when I I'm ashamed to say that for a brief period of time, I got sucked into that mentality. Right. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Here I am at Princeton, and uh, everybody's telling me I should be something better and greater, and maybe I should. So I decided to take my love for science and my love for people and my desire to do service, and I decided I would be pre-med. I would, and, and that was very well received. Of course. That was a great goal. And I, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't loving it. You know, it wasn't mm. getting me out of bed every morning. So I, on my own decided to seek out a volunteer opportunity. Hmm. And I went to the Student Volunteer Council at Princeton University. They have all kinds of opportunities. I went to a fair, and there's Habitat for Humanity, they had prison outreach, and I saw a sign that said, Marie Katzenbach School for the Deaf. Hmm. And I just saw the word school. Huh. And I had never met a deaf person my entire life. I didn't know sign language at the time, but I just saw school, and I just wanted to pursue this passion at the same time I was you know, fulfilling my pre-med requirements. So long story short, I started volunteering in this fourth grade classroom with these little kids. And I, when it was, it was like a magnet. It just, it sucked me in, it drew me in, it attracted me there. It's very hard for me to put into words exactly what it was. But no sooner would I step out of that classroom on the Tuesday mornings when I volunteered, all I could think about was when is it going to be Tuesday again? Wow. It's all I could think is when is it going to be Tuesday again? And then I started volunteering at the high school level because they needed some help with their chemistry and physics labs. And then they said, well, you know, when you're coming Tuesday, maybe you could come Thursday. Maybe you could come Friday. And all of a sudden, I was going to the school as many days as I could get there. Right. And then I, I realized that, you know, I, I really had no business being a pre-med major, that really this was my heart, and that I wasn't going to care what anybody thought about it. And it was one of those moments that I remember like it was yesterday. I was sitting at my desk looking at a thermodynamics problems that I was working on, and I just looked out the window, I just pushed back from my desk. And I just decided that I was gonna go find the teacher preparation program at Princeton. Now you have to understand, you can't major in education at Princeton. That's not a major, okay? There is a certification program, which at the time was off campus. I, I started walking, I didn't even know where I was going. Hmm. I didn't even know what I was gonna say when I got there. Hmm. Because here I was now at the beginning of my junior year. How was I even going to do this? How was I going to graduate on time? How was I was going, to, going to fulfill? But I went in and met these absolutely wonderful people in this teacher program, and they said, we're going to make it happen. Wow. And yes, I had to turn my life upside down a little bit in terms of credits and student teaching and so forth, but uh, it was the best decision I made. And really, that's how it all started. So. And you're married to a teacher. I am married to a teacher. Okay, so you're, you're we teach in, this, in the family. We teach in the same school, Wynn. Do you really? We do. Oh, wow. We do. You know, have you seen that, that video? And actually, there's a book out now called What Teachers Make or something like that. Have you heard about that? I have heard of that. Which was pretty powerful. You powerful. Know? And the, the story is a, a dinner party and exactly. some, some egotistical lawyer, lawyer asking a teacher, you know, well, what, what do, do you, you make? make? Exactly. And he's saying those that can do, those that can't exactly. teach, you know, so that whole thing. And, and the teacher's response to that is like, well, I make kids. <laughs> yeah, and then the list goes on yeah. and on, and it's very powerful. I inspire kids. Stuff. I Absolutely. inspire learning. That's what I make. Exactly. I mean, just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. It is brilliant. And, you know, I've been a school owner myself for almost 30 years and have fought that stereotype all along. That in the beauty industry, sure. beauty school instructors were failures, right. so to speak, in a salon. They couldn't make it in the salon industry, and so they retired in, in a school, they're at the bottom of the totem pole, so to yes. speak, in order of importance, and 
And we were absolutely out to change that dynamic and change that mindset. And I believe that we absolutely have. And so, I mean, this is such a, a passionate topic for me. Good. So, again, I'm going to be all over the map here. So, first of all, let's just talk about White House. What was sure. that like? Wow, it was surreal. If there weren't pictures and video, I probably wouldn't believe it actually happened. Wow. The most amazing thing about that experience was getting to share it, not only with the other 54 state and territorial teachers of the year, but also my family. Hmm. My father, my mother, my husband, my little girl, who was five at the time, we were all welcomed into the Oval Office. Wow. We had a family picture in the Oval Office. Everybody got to shake hands with President Obama, and he was all about my little girl. <laughs> Everybody asked me all the time, they said, what did the Oval Office look like? What? I said, I have no idea because I was just watching him mm. with my little Carly. Mm. And he was asking her questions. You know, what do you do in school? And do you play an instrument? And you're very well spoken. And let me show you this goodie bag I have for you. And he brought her a goodie bag, handed her you know, White House Frisbee and White House M&Ms. I mean, really oh taking the time to take it down and take out every item. And it was just amazing. We have an, an unbelievable photograph that was taken by a White House photographer of you know, her looking up at him and him looking down at her oh and the rest gosh. of us just in the background because it was it was just a moment an amazing moment and after they left the Oval Office I had a minute or two with the president and the Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan to just kind of they were obviously trying to make me feel comfortable you know it wasn't right. anything serious we were just joking around and then of course we walked out to the Rose Garden and the president delivered approximately a 10 minute address. We happened to be there on National Teacher Appreciation Day. Mm. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but that year it did. So it was a really a celebration of teachers. And after he was finished, I got my three minutes at the presidential podium to deliver remarks on behalf of all teachers. And what was your message? Well, again, my message was one of pride and one of connections. And to try to, in that three minutes, communicate as teachers who we are who we are. I referenced my students. I referenced the students at the School for the Deaf who inspired me to become a teacher. I referenced my daughter, you know, aspiring young child with anything possible. Mm. Um, I talked about no matter where we're from, no matter what our niche is, that we're all really teaching the same things. We're teaching, it's not just about content. It's about collaboration skills, communication skills. It's about passion and, and, and all, you know, all sorts of things. The list goes on and on. And I tried to communicate at the time that this is not easy. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to meet the diverse needs of learners in your classroom. And it's a position that requires tremendous time and love and energy and patience. And I did say in that address that we can't do it alone that it's not just about the teachers in the classroom, it's its parents, it's community, it's our government, it's everybody supporting the idea that, you know, we can't just say we want the greatest public education system in the world. Right. That we've got to make that mean something and that we've got to work together and be problem solvers and do everything that we ask of our students to do that for ourselves. Well, that applies to anything, you know. I, 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 I get request because we raise money for food for Africa. And so I get people say, gosh, you know, when can you hook me up to fly me out so I can help feed the the hungry children in Africa. I'm like, well, if you volunteered to feed the hungry down the street, right. you know, you want the exactly. expensive plane ticket to fly over there. But yeah, so what you're saying is if you can't say that you want a change in education, if you're as a parent aren't part of the PTA or a part of a student program or volunteering to raise money to 
get better supplies in the classroom and support. Yeah, so I, I hear all that. Right, I agree 100%. I mean, you know, so often we look to, to global issues, and of course that's incredibly important, and we all want to be connected with something bigger. bigger. But again, you know, what are you doing in your own backyard? What are you doing in your own school? And that's where it all starts. So do you feel like you're, for the rest of your life, will always have to, so to speak, defend the credibility of your chosen profession as a teacher? Well, Again, doctors probably never have to defend, no. well, I'm, I'm a doctor and this is why. You will always right. probably for the rest of your career have to, but you're... That's right. And actually, in my National Teacher of the Year application, one of the things I said in one of my essays, and the, ass the topic of the essay was, you know, in part, what do you do to strengthen the teaching profession? And, and that's part of it, to take pride in it and to defend it. Mm -hmm. But I think the difference is, in the past, before I was named National Teacher, I think it was more of an more of an angry defense. But, but, but now, after being national teacher, I realize, again, it's, it's not helpful to me to be angry and defensive about it and, and to not understand why other people don't understand why, that it's my job to educate. Educate that rather than my, beat them over the head. Exactly. Got it. <laughs> my job is, is to teach. I mean, and just as an example, I found, my, I found myself on an airplane sitting next to a gentleman who just started to completely bash the public education system and all the teachers in it. Mm -hmm. And that's where I took a deep breath and, you know, I made a decision. I could either, you know, put on my earphones and pretend to sleep for the next two hours of that flight, or I could educate to try to understand where he was coming from, to try to help him understand. So I think that's... You're think, a teacher. I'm a teacher. And to be teacher of the year means that, you know, you have to lead and, and yes, defend, but in a positive way to help bring people in and help them Got understand. Got it. Because I think sometimes we can become our, our own worst enemy. Exactly. You know, or we're out there marching in parades to get equal right. or recognition, but we're doing it from an angry point right. of view, and that doesn't draw people in. And one of the things that, that I've learned, when exactly what you just said to draw people in. Um, one of the things that we're all going through in public education is, is you know, wanting to be understood. And, and why don't our board members understand us? And why don't, why don't our politicians understand us? And the key is you got to bring them in. They don't understand because they don't do what you do, but that's just a fact. And I learned, again, in the teacher of your process to, to invite. Mm -hmm. I've had board members in my my room and not just in my room hey have a pair of goggles come on in with the kids do the experiment with them and often they leave they're not looking at what I'm doing they walk out saying wow I, I really didn't know what kids were doing I just didn't know wow. didn't know so I have learned and one of the things that messages that I've tried to share is as hard as it is to to reach out we have to be the ones to reach out and when you reach out often people will reach back and to bring them in and allow them to experience and to give them a, a closer view of what we're really all trying to, to accomplish. I want to interject something here because I, I know there's maybe business owners listening to this right now. They might be thinking, oh, I can turn off the interview right now because this doesn't apply to me. You know, I think that probably the best business leaders are educators, they're teachers, because I think when people leave a company it's because they're bored. When they don't see any room for growth and opportunity, right. they're going to leave. Right. And so, yeah, I love my job and I'm making this amount of money, but I'm bored. Right. And, and how many people are bored? I would rather be stressed and challenged than bored. And that's what a good teacher does for you. A good teacher challenges you. And so when I work for this company, I show up, I do my job, but they're teaching me how to be a better parent. They're teaching me how to be a better citizen. They're teaching me arts and crafts. They're teaching right. me, you know, I'm getting other parenting skills even though I'm working in a hair salon or I'm working in a pizza parlor, exactly. I'm learning and growing and, and that's the reason why I'm loyal here. And so again, to you business leaders, for you to create an environment, an environment of learning. And as long as we're talking about that environment of learning, 
and I know the answer to this question, but I just want to hear it from you because you are Teacher of the Year. Where does ego fit into the classroom? <laughs> Where does ego fit into the classroom? You know, the, the classroom is, is all about others. The classroom is all about others and being dedicated and devoted to their success. One of the reasons, again, that most many teachers are not even aware of awards programs because we are about others. That's what we chose. We chose to give, which is certainly not to say that we're not um, trying to be our best and learn and grow as educators and, and achieve the most that we can, but our success comes through the success of others. When you walk out of the classroom and you know that you know Johnny had the courage to raise his hand for the first time. Like you share in that success. I mean, you're not getting anything from it. You're not gonna get a star by your name for it, but you see that as success. I think teachers see so many little things as evidence of growth and success. And I think one of the frustrations and challenges that we have is that it's hard to capture that on something like an evaluation or let's say a, a checklist of teaching skills. There's all these intangibles. There's all these things going on that we know later on will have great payoff. But uh, it's really about others, and that's why I got into it in the first place. Well, for you as a teacher, you, you know f to see one student go from one to two is huge, huge for them. Whereas for another student to go from one to 100 was a piece of cake. They exactly. didn't really have to think about it. And But what do we celebrate? The one that went from one to 100. Exactly. They're the ones who get the stars. They're the ones who get the accolades and the tuition paid for and stuff. Right. But you're the one who saw as the teacher the kid who went from one to two. Absolutely. And really that goes back to starting with deaf students. I mean, one of the things I noticed when I started working with deaf students and students with other special needs, I mean, these are not your traditional science students win. I mean, I know that you say, you, know, you, I, you never would have been in my class, you know, but, but these are not traditional science students. But what I saw in their environment and, and everything that they were teaching me about their culture and their language, they were natural born scientists. They had all the skills they needed. They questioned, they explored, they weren't afraid to take risks. They didn't care about that grade. They didn't care about winding up on you know, the honor roll or anything. They just wanted to explore and learn. And I just realized there's all this untapped potential. There's all this untapped potential. And one of the things that I've tried to do over the years as an AP chemistry teacher, and you know, people think, oh wow, AP chemistry, I bet you get you know, the cream of the crop in the top in your class. And I do get those students obviously, but I open the doors to everyone. I, I cast the widest net. If you want to come in and you want to learn and you want to grow, and it doesn't matter, like you said, if, if you are not that student who's flying from one to 100 in, in 60 seconds flat, and if it takes you all year to go from one to two, that's okay. That's okay, because everybody's on their own journey, and everybody is a scientist. Everybody is a scientist. Now, somehow in school, we find a way to beat that out of our young children, and we start to put people in category. You know, you're a scientist, you're not a scientist, you're an artist, you're not an artist. But my message is everybody's a scientist. Everybody's an artist. Everybody's a writer. It's just a matter of wow. bringing out and untapping that potential. I heard it once said that um, kind of a definition of teaching isn't so much putting information in, rather it's drawing out. Is that what you're saying? Drawing it out, absolutely. Can you talk about that? You know, I think in science it's a particular problem because you think about the teacher standing at the front of the room and lecturing and demonstrating and so forth. And, you know, again, going back to teaching deaf students, you know, I, I realized from the start that wasn't going to work. Like this idea that I was going to impart information to these students just wasn't going to work. They, they each had their own learning style. Mm. You know, I got into, as you know, Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Um, I got into looking at how can you capitalize on 
four senses when one is missing. You know, we talk about sensory input in different ways that students like to experience things visually and auditorily and kinesthetically. Well, what if the auditory is gone? Then what? Do you overcompensate on the visual? Do you, do you bring in more movement, so forth? I just, the, the first group of students that I taught were so incredibly unique and diverse in terms of background and learning style. I had no choice but to look at education as completely personalized, individual, and tailored. And I think what happens is as we get, you know, into larger schools where you have classes of 35, I and mean, let's face it, I teach a lot of students at the same time, there's that tendency to try to go back to the one-size-fits-all, let's just cram in the information. But if you really treat each student as individual, and I really, the beauty of of a really talented teacher is to make a student feel like the only person in the room, mm -hmm. even though there may be 35, to be that tuned in. You know, a really, a really great teacher can make a student feel like the only person. That's what you make. You make a student feel as though they're the only, only person one. in the room. Wow. The whole idea of, of ego in the classroom, and I agree that ego will just completely shut down those doors, mm -hmm. those walls of, of learning. Do you find that a lot of teachers sometimes want to blame the learner? Well, they didn't get it. It's the learner's fault. And, and what's your response to that? How do you coach or, or train somebody to? I don't think there's as much of that as you might think. Okay. I don't see it so much as, as teachers blaming learners. I, I think that teachers become frustrated often with the work environment and the situation that they're given. For example, you hear these stories of you know, 40, 50 students in a class. Well, how is the learner going to get it in that situation? Right. You, know, you, you hear, well, everybody wants you know, students to be prepared for the 21st century, but yet we're still often operating in schools that don't have basic computers. So I think that for teachers right now, the frustration is more, you know, here's the expectation. We know the kids can learn, but they don't have either the correct resources or the right work environment or the right support systems or the right leadership, that there are other pieces missing. So I don't see it so much as blaming the learner for not getting it. Okay. I think it's blaming the, the, perhaps the school culture and the structure for not supporting it as we could. Okay. How important do you feel it is to create all kinds of opportunities for uh, learning and aspiring? And let me back that up. Again, I'm thinking of my business owners here, and, and I've done this in, in my own company, where, again, for that one person to go from one to two is huge. And, and I have employees who they want to clock in and they want to clock out, and, and that's okay. Because then they go home and they're single moms and they have other priorities. And, and, and I can't get angry that they're not so passionate about my product of the month special or whatever, okay? But they're great employees. They, they come in and they do their job. But at 5 o'clock, they're done and they got to go be a mom. They got to go do something else now, and, that, and that's great. But then there's other people who... They, they will get bored easily. And right. so I feel like I have to have all kinds of ways for them to advance, aspire, move up. Um, can you, am I asking no, the right question? You're, you're, you're right on. And, you know, that's what makes, one of the things that makes teaching so complex and difficult. It's this constant trying to solve this puzzle of how to meet every single person's need and make them fit. You know, in, in a classroom where I teach, you know, we talk a lot about differentiated learning and, and having differentiated activities such that, you know, if you plan a lesson for a day and you know that some students are going to finish that lesson in 15 minutes and others are going to need the entire 90 minutes to do. So what do you do? How do you honor the student who needs to take the 90 minutes? And that's okay, but yet continue to push the others who don't. You know, there are a lot of 
of things that we can do in the classroom just through differentiated lesson planning. For example, I might set up, for example, a walkabout throughout the room where students are solving different problems and involved in different tasks. And I know that some students will only finish perhaps two or three of the boards. And other students might be finishing all of them and then creating their own or then going to a computer and enriching. So it's a constant challenge for all teachers to personalize and also to, to value the, quote, slower learners. Because everybody sees what's going on, right? I mean, a, a quote, slower learner who, as you said, is, is going from point A to point B or step one to point two, they know there's other people going from one to 100. And that's frustrating, but it's, it's this constant validation. You know, one of the things that I appreciate most about where I started is that I learned to look people in the eyes. I learned to look people in the face because, you know, when you're talking in sign language, so much is communicated through the face and the body and so forth. And even as technology has progressed and everybody spends more and more of their time staring at screens, you know, in my classroom, I'm looking kids in the eye. You know, I'm, I'm, t I'm talking to them personally. I'm pulling them aside and say, hey, you know, this is where you are. This is what you're working on right now. Don't worry about what's going on around you. Wow. And really, again, making that person feel like the only person in the room. You use that word validation. Absolutely. It's, it's validation. It's empowerment. But it's got to be face to face. You know, I can't be like checking my email while I'm saying that. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. I can't be erasing my board and turning my back. And these are little things as we all get so busy. And our to-do list, you know, is 700 items long. It's like, well, I can listen to the student and check my email and erase my board at the same time. No, you, no, you really can't. No, you can't. And this Maybe is Maybe you can, but the student lost something. Oh, and they There's know. There's no connection. And they know it. And they know it. And one of the things I think is most challenging for me to communicate to the new generation of, of teachers that are coming in, our teachers of promise, you know, the teachers who are going to teach my children and my grandchildren, is yes, technology has changed. It's a wonderful thing. We all use it. It's amazing. I've seen it do amazing things for students with special needs, but you have got to look people in the face. You have got to validate people. You, you've got to call people by their names. Mm. You know, hi, Julie, how are you today? Mm. It, it makes a difference. Mm. Those little things make a huge difference to kids. You also talked about that personal connection with the students, and I, I see that with my staff, or even just in business. You know, I can, like on my Facebook, I have, I don't know, 15,000 fans or whatever, which, you know, is not as much as Justin Bieber, but I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> You're getting there. Yeah. And I can post, you know, something again, product of the month, and I get, you know, three replies or three likes or whatever. I post a photo of, my one-year-old daughter and a thousand people hit me up. Exactly. It's like, oh my God, when's a human being? When, when's a dad? He's not just the boss. He's not just a business owner. He's not just somebody trying to sell me something. He's a dad. He's a son. He's a husband. He's a human being. He's, and people really connect with that more. People want to be connected to people. Yeah. They really do. And... One of the things I ask my students to do on the very first day of class, and people ask me, like, oh, what does the national teacher do on the very first day of chemistry class? What's the first thing you teach? Well, one of the first things I do on the first day is I ask my students to write about themselves in a very open-ended, it's not an essay, it's not a bulleted, it's not on a handout. It's not graded. It's not, it's not graded. I ask them to write for me. I want to mm. know about their experiences in science. I want to know about how they feel about school in general. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, if you hate it, I want you to tell me you hate it, and I want you to back it up, and I want you to tell me why. Wow. At the same time, if you love it, it's okay to say that, and I want to know why too, so I can tie into that. Mm -hmm. And then I specifically ask them to tell me who they are when they're not in chemistry class. Because oh, I want wow. to know, and yet, and then all what comes up what, for all the... sorts of things come up. I mean, a lot of students will tell me about their hobbies or where they work or a great experience that they had, or they tell me about a volunteer project that they're involved in, or they tell me about a challenges that they have at home and how that's so. 
just by giving an unstructured, hey, I really want to know who you are kind of response. And actually, I don't give them back to them because they're, they're not graded, but I reread them throughout the year because oh, yeah. as I get to know the students better and better, the statement makes even more and more sense to me. And at the end, we wrap it up and, and kind of reflect on what's What a great idea. Changed. So like if all Simple. of a sudden something came up and exactly. you saw behavior that right. like confused you, you can go back and read their essay and say, oh. And say, oh, that's right. That's she right. takes care of four kids after school because her mom has cancer. Wow. And people really appreciate when you take the time to get, I mean, one of the things I appreciate about this particular interview is that you're taking the time to, you know, in a non-scripted way, try to figure out what somebody is about, which is different from many of the interviews that we all go through where, hey, you know, this is soundbite culture. You got 20 seconds to make your point. And I don't think people get much from that, right. you know. Um, I wonder, and I wonder how many teachers or business leaders are, are doing that. They're just little sound bites right. to their children, sound bites to their staff. Right. It's got to be and more than that. Yeah. If you want to build something meaningful, it's got to be more than that. Yeah. I remember uh, this may not relate to you, or uh, actually it would relate to you because you understand these things, but this business successful salon and spa owner telling me that the sales in his nail department were really low. And so he was trying to figure that out. So he hires a consultant and he's given the consultant a tour and they're going through the hair salon part of the big building and you know hey so and so knew them by name how was your vacation how are the three kids knew the names of the three kids and you know hey how's your mom recovering from that cancer surgery like throughout that knew everything about them walked into the nail department didn't know their name didn't know and the consultant this wasn't on purpose that this came out but the nail consultant's like here's the reason why right. you have no connection to these employees who work in your nail department right it was so different night and day between your hairdressers and your nail technicians. And I th so I just thought, like, do you have a favorite story that you like to tell about how having a connection with the students and maybe there was a background story and oh, that wow. you... I, I have so many to tell. To just tell give you us truth. one because I just um, love... I think the best teachers are storytellers. Yeah. It's easy to quote from a, sure. somebody else's writing and doctrine from a book, but when you can say, well, this is what the book says, but here's my personal story, here's my personal experience, here's what happened to me, and I, I learned those lessons so much uh, easier. Let me, let me tell you a story about a teacher, a fabulous teacher I worked with named Scott Bolliard at Urbana High School. One of the greatest teachers I've ever known um, would easily be in my place uh, if he were still alive. He died from Crohn's disease at age 40. Just to show you how important connections are. I mean, Scott was, it was your amazing, did, did everything a teacher should do. You know, amazing activities and lessons and differentiation and all that. But students would come out of his class and they'd be all abuzz after a test or something. And they said, I finally got it. I finally got that handshake from Mr. Bullard. Because what he would do is when a student had achieved some milestone, whether it was 100 on a test or something they had been working for, he would stop everything he was doing He'd walk over to them, look them straight in the eyes, hold out his hand, and just shake it. And they worked for that handshake. They didn't work for the 100% that he was going to put into the computer grading program. They worked. They lived. They thrived for that handshake. And of all the things that anybody else observing his class would jot down on their notes, oh, you know, Mr. Bulliard is posting objectives effectively and doing this, it's the handshake wow. that kids worked for. Wow. It was amazing. So you know, many stories. Amazing. When you can get people to uh, want to perform, and that's what teachers do. You know, your, your students want to perform for you. They want to, and again, if it's just 
for that handshake or that hug or that right. that connection, as you say. And I think one of the mistakes we're making these days, and I hear people tell me all the time, they're like, Michelle, you know, kids have changed. They're like, you're getting old. You're in this 17 years now. Students have changed because they're digital natives. You know, they're digital natives. They're growing up with technology that you never had. It totally changes who they are and how you have to approach them. And, and see, I think that's a mistake because, yes, they do grow up with different tools, but there's always been technology. I mean, something that, that really blows my mind is when people say, oh, we have technology now. We've always had technology. And when you think about technology 200 years ago and then 50 years later, the technology seemed amazing. When I started student teaching, the height of technology was an overhead projector and a laser disc machine. <laughs> but that was huge, Wynn. Right. That was huge. Like, I taught in a classroom with a laser disc machine. You know, okay, and so then that was replaced by VHS and then by DVDs, and then, you know, now we've got iPads and all this. But what hasn't changed is that human connection. The human connection never changes. The technology that we use around us will always continue to change because what we're using right now in 2013 will be laughable by 2033. We won't be using iPads anymore. We don't know what it'll be. Technology always changes around us, but the human connection, that, that stays constant. And like what you were saying before, is you remove the human connection and what a disaster that would be in the learning process. Well, there is no learning process without Sweet. that human connection. Sweet. Okay, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. So you say that you're passionate about partnering with parents and community leaders, business leaders, and educators to eliminate the achievement gaps. Talk about that. How important is the role that, that parents play. And again, remember who your audience is here. Your audience is business leaders, and uh, so maybe some of your audience are parents who have little kids in elementary or, or grade school or high school, and so they're going to apply your brilliance here to their role as a parent. But again, it's, it's business leaders and the role that they need to play in the lives of their staff or students in their schools for learning and growth and opportunity. That well, was a mouthful, sorry. We, we know that there are some pretty alarming statistics still about the levels to which students achieve. Now you can define achievement in different ways, but when you get right down to it, rich kids do better than poor kids. Uh, often, you know, Caucasian students outperform African American students. Of course, those are generalities and certainly exceptions, but we have pockets of excellence all over the country. We have successful schools and not successful schools. So there are definitely all sorts of gaps. There are achievement gaps. There are opportunity gaps. There are access gaps. We would like to believe that education is the great equalizer. That's what we've always said. That's the whole role of public education, but we don't see that playing out. And really what we realize is it can't all happen in the seven-hour school day. So in terms of a message to anybody, everybody who could be listening to this and what can they do, the important thing is to think about what you can do. For example, you know, I'm a parent. I'm a parent of a seven-year-old, and so she's in second grade. And often I get frustrated because my job and my job hours are such that I can't do as much as I think I should do. I see other parents, I see other moms going on the field trips and volunteering in the school, and I can't do that because I'm responsible for 86 students of my own. So I focus on what I can do. I can cut box tops off cereal and peel the labels off soup and turn them into the school so the school can get a new printer. You know, I can come for a science day and do special activities with the kids and teach them about my job. You have to focus on what you can do. Often business leaders will say to me, you know, we've always wanted to, we love education, we want to support our students, we just don't know how. 
You know, we just don't know how. And that's the opportunity for a conversation. A lot of schools have career fairs. A lot of schools do mock interviews in their English department. If you can volunteer for a day, even if it's just giving up a morning, to come in and interview a student and give them that real world face-to-face -face connection about what it might be like to interact with somebody outside of school. Because often our, our students don't know. You know, they hear from their teachers about this career or that career, but, but they also know that we're not the ones in those careers and they want to see real people. So, you know, it, it sometimes it's just as easy as reaching out to the school and saying, hey, I have this skill, how could it be utilized? For example, uh, when the tsunami hit in Japan, I got an, an email from a parent who was also a scientist at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He said, hey, I don't know where you are in your curriculum and I don't want to interrupt what you're doing, but you know, I, I really love to share my perspective on this. I was like, are you kidding? Can you come Monday? You know, at that point, it's who cares where we are in the curriculum? Right. You know, this is an amazing outside perspective to shed light on this major, you know, catastrophe and all the implications. He was literally in my room that, that next week wow. engaging my students. So I think, you know, too often, and I said it earlier in the interview, so often many of us, and I'll put myself in that category too, it's, it's so much easier to reach back than to reach out. What do you mean by that? What I mean is the issue is initiation. You know, that parent contacted me. He, he took the opportunity to reach out. Whereas many professionals would, will reach back. For example, if I had contacted him, then he, he would have, have said responded. Yes. Right. He would have, but he had the idea right. to reach out. So if Michelle calls me, I'd absolutely show exactly. up. Exactly. And I, and I think that's what's going on sometimes when well, you I know, love you, that attitude. You Quit have, waiting for the phone call. They're not going to call you. Right, right. Don't, you have to call them. Don't wait. Well. You, you might not be invited, but invite yourself anyway. So I think the message to whether it's parents or community members or leaders, find a way to reach out. We don't know what your skills are. We don't know. I mean, I would love to, to tap our retired community some more. I mean, we have all these amazing retired educators, and I know they, they've certainly earned their retirement, but, but many of them have useful you know, skills and insights and knowledge, even one hour a week to come in and work with students one-on-one -on -one or share their experiences. So I think we all as a society need to get better at both reaching out and reaching back and not just waiting for that call. That's such great advice. You know, you were talking about how there's educational gaps and how maybe one demographic can statistically perform better than another. Did you see that? That it was a, there's a high school in Chicago area, I think it's called Urban Academy or something like that, where the entire senior graduating class is accepted, accepted to college. To college. Mm -hmm. And this high school is literally in the middle of, right. of uh, drug right. gang warfare. Right. There, yeah. there are amazing success stories going on. I'm not just in Chicago, but also, for example, Harlem Children's Zone, up in New York. Of course, we have the KIPP programs, the Knowledge is Power programs. And, and what we need to figure out is how to not only replicate, but generalize and expand those sorts of programs. I mean, often those sorts of programs have um, incredible funds, um, incredible philanthropic um, gifts and endowments, and you know they can get around some of the rules um, since many of them are not public schools, um, maybe charter schools or so forth. They can kind of write their own rules, so to speak, and do what they know works. Our challenge in public education is to try to take 
what is working in these isolated pockets and really generalize it and expand it with the resources that we have and the realities that we have in the public schools. There are absolutely amazing things going on. I mean, I've traveled all over this country now as national teacher. There are amazing things going on. Mm -hmm. Sadly, we don't know what a lot of those amazing things are because we hear too much about what's not going right, right. and, you know, the latest shocking horror story in this school or that school. There are incredible things going on, Win. There really are. And uh, the more we can get those stories shared, the more we can learn from them hmm. and say, oh, hey, you're doing up, up in Chicago. I think I could make that work here for me in Frederick, Maryland. And all of a sudden, you've got a chain reaction. And that's something that I talk about a lot, is a chain reaction. You've got to start with something small, but then grow it, just like um, in nuclear energy. You know, talking about um, uh, resources available to classrooms, you know, I live in a, in a fairly affluent neighborhood but there's a lot of kids in my neighborhood, and the, the parents of those kids are constantly fundraising. Mm -hmm. They're constantly mm -hmm. fundraising to provide right. resources and, and opportunities for their kids. Educate us on that. Well, you know, money is always an issue. You always feel like you could do more with more money, and you, know, you never seem to have enough, and once you get what you need, you want more. You know, a couple different issues going on. You know, a lot of states, a lot of school districts are experiencing a lot of funding difficulties. I mean, it's just a reality of the tough economy and, you know, cut, strained budgets and so forth. And it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to say, well, you know, we just don't have the money, we can't fund it. I mean, if you, again, if you want to have the best education program in the world, if you want your public schools to be the best in the world, you're going to have to make that a priority. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, Vice President Joe Biden in one of his speeches said something like, um, don't tell me what your priorities are, show me what your budget is, and I'll tell you what your priorities are. I mean, to, to some extent, you know, we fund what we care about and what we believe in. Um, so there is a responsibility there. But yes, absolutely, um, you know, parent efforts, making sure that students of a particular area have what they need. I think that's, that's ongoing. I mean, I know as a parent, I'm wrapped up in that. And you, know, you want your kids to have the best. You want your kids to have the best. And if, if turning in, you know, thousands of box tops means that, you know, my daughter's school can have, each kid can have their own headphones that they can listen to their computer. Well, that's, I'm all for it. I think anything that we can all do, it's not all about money, but money matters. And money can make things possible for students who don't otherwise have the same opportunities. So traveling internationally, uh, as part of this title, you went to Singapore, you went to, where did you go? I went to China, Singapore, and Japan. Okay. And tell us about that experience. Well, China was my first trip. I was named a national teacher in May, and boom, June, I was on the plane to, to China. You know, I was told that I would be meeting with their deputy general of, of education, that I would be visiting schools and giving lectures and, and all sorts of things. I mean, this was not even a month into it. And did you? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's, oh, my goodness. That's what I was doing. Wow. I was there as an ambassador. I was there to speak about American public education and to learn from them. And what was really interesting in China... I expected the conversation to be more two-way. You know, here's why I have to bring to the table. What do you have to bring to the table? How can we? They were so completely focused on what we do in American education. And the issue that came up over and over again was creativity. Creativity. Really? How do you get students to think for themselves? How do you get students to be creative and take risks? Because their system is so traditional. You know, they have a model of, you know, pre preparation for tests. And, of course, we hear about all that in the media. And, and they didn't want to talk about test scores. 
they didn't want to talk about how I get my AP students to pass their exam. They said, you know, tell me about projects that you do. Tell me about how you involve people. How do you connect with your students? They wanted to know about connections. How do you get to know students as individuals? So they're starting at a very different level. Some of the questions were actually kind of shocking. Uh, I was in one location. They said, how do you teach chemistry to deaf students? I took the question literally and answered it, well, you know, American Sign Language, so on and so forth, accommodation. But they said, no, 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 why would you teach chemistry to deaf students? So, so that's a wholly different perspective. So I think sometimes in America we beat ourselves up because we look at, you know, what we need to improve and the challenges, and of course that needs its due attention. But in China they were very impressed with what we do. Mm. Um, they seem to have further to go in their mind that we have to go. They see us as running towards a burning building that they're running from, the whole testing scenario and, and you know, classifying kids and categorizing them by, by grades and scores. Wow, so fascinating. So it really surprised me. It was not what I expected. Wonderful opportunity. I spoke with a lot of teachers. You know, you get your best information out of people when you're just sitting in a small group sharing a meal or something like that rather than in a big presentation. You know, I asked teachers if they felt respected. They said no. They said they believe that's a global issue. You know, mm -hmm. we had talked about the those who can do and those who can't teach. Right. They said, Michelle, that's a global issue. We don't have it any better over here than you have it there. Um, so they had the same within their society, you know, the doctors and the lawyers and so on and so forth. Um, so then having that China experience, I, I ventured to Japan in October, several months later. So I had a better idea of what to expect. And I was brought to Japan by a group called the SESA Group, which actually reaches out to students who are traditionally not served by the public school system in Japan. And I'm thinking, really? What? There, there are students in Japan who, who don't thrive in their school system? I didn't know that truancy was a huge problem in Japan. I didn't know that students who didn't feel that they fit just stopped coming to school. I didn't know these things. So they, huh? what I really appreciated about Japan was that they showed me everything. They took me to... They're high-powered, you know, super science schools. And then they took me to a special needs school. And then they took me to a traditional public school. Hmm. And I met with, again, the minister and, and the deputy minister. And I met with teachers. But the most powerful thing was they took me to the tsunami region in Onagawa City and asked me to teach a class and connect with a group of sixth grade students. So it was really powerful stuff. And again, as I traveled, what I realized is that we're really, you know, of course, we all celebrate differences and diversity. But... We, we really should also be celebrating the many ways that we are the same. Mm -hmm. I just felt so connected to these people. Oh. And by the time I got to Singapore at the end of the year, I just felt right at home. You know, right. there's educators from, from Singapore and from Australia and from China had come over. And, you know, you sit down for a minute and you feel like you've known each other forever. I mean, teachers are teachers everywhere. That's oh. really something that was really special to learn. So do you feel like you would be a teacher today had you not started off teaching deaf children? Like, do you feel like that's kind of what drew you in and captured your heart and <laughs> sold you, so to speak, on the idea of being a teacher for the rest of your life? That's definitely what did it. Uh, again, I, I always wanted to be a teacher, but there, there is so much pressure not to be that had I not had that experience, had I not sought out that volunteer experience, I, I may well be working in a medical clinic somewhere and probably would have been doing very well at it. Right. You know, and that's something that people talk about. You, Michelle, you know, you'd be so good at this and you'd be so good at that. But the issue was what was going to get me out of bed every morning. Right. I didn't just want a job. 
I wanted something that I love to do. And I'm very much like you, Win. Like, I want a challenge. I don't want to be bored. I want something that every day is different and, and every day is a challenge and I can't figure it out. And I go home at night and I stew over it and I come back the next day. That's the sort of thing that I thrive on. Mm -hmm. And had I not had that experience, I don't know if there would have been another experience that possibly would have taken me down the same path. You know, I, I, I wrote a book called Be Nice, and, yes. and people have been, I get a couple of emails here and there, you know, why don't you write a, a kid's version of that mm -hmm. book? And I would love to figure out how to make that happen. I really would. I, I did get invited to speak at an elementary school. It wasn't for the kids. It was for the parents and for the teachers and for the administration. But the, the cool part about it was um, they had all the kids, you know, kindergarten class, first, second, third, uh, sixth grade, all of them made a little book for me. And so I got, you know, seven little books. And, and they were pages that the kids had drawn and done pictures and notes to me. And I was just, I still have it to this day. Sure. I, I pull it out and I read it. And I, like, I would, I would love to be able to figure that out. I would love to be able to figure out how to stand in front of a, a group of kids mm -hmm. and have that kind of a connection as, as, as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, just, kids are people too. You know, it's amazing. You think... You know, I've been to workshops on the differences between the way kids learn and the way adults learn and so forth, but we're all people. And I think a lot of adults missed out on some of the classic ways that, you know, kids should be taught, you know, maybe didn't have enough play or didn't have enough learning engagement and so forth. But the other way around, kids can handle a lot more than you think sometimes. So I know sometimes my seven-year-old daughter, Carly, she'll really surprise me. She'll come up with something really profound and amazing. And, and I think, wow, you know, I can learn as much from her as she can learn from me. And, um, you know, again, just being a teacher in any situation, whether it's with kids or with adults or, you know, standing in the line at the grocery store. I mean, we all have something to teach. We all have something to learn. Now, how long have you been teaching, did you say? At the I, I'm entering my 17th year. So I've been a total of 12 years at my current school, Urbana High School, and then I taught for four years at the Maryland School Wait, for Wait, are you, are you teaching kids of some of your graduates now? Not yet. Not yet. Oh. But, not quite yet, Wynn, because I teach high school. But I do have many of my former students who are teachers either oh, wow. with me in my school or in schools within the county. So that's really neat to see it come full cycle, to see somebody that I taught then become a teacher, and that's been pretty Actually, exciting. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, um, maybe sometimes it's, it's thankless, and you don't know that you made a difference, and then five years later exactly. they come back. That's exactly right. Stories? Oh, all kinds of stories like that. Tell you us know, because, And I think that's... The, the tricky part of teaching is realizing that it's not an instant gratification sort of endeavor. I mean, often you never know until far later that you made an impact on somebody's life. I mean, I get emails out of the blue from students who, oh, hey, you know, I haven't seen you or talked to you for 10 years, but I wanted you to know I was in the middle of this test and I remembered, I remembered how you told me to persevere and forge on and I did, you know, and this is somebody who's in medical school. Or I'll bump into somebody and they'll look at me and, because, you know, obviously I've changed over the years and they'll say, Mrs. Mrs. Shear? Oh my gosh. And they say, I know, you know, I always meant to contact you. I always meant to tell you that. And then you find out through the grapevine and that's something that I tell myself every day. You know, I may never see I may never see the end result. But you, you know it's there. And often 
people don't take the time. I know I'll put myself in that category. We don't take enough time to reach out to people and say, hey, this is what you did for me and this is why it was meaningful. Or you mm -hmm. said this to me and that had a profound impact on my life. In fact, when I was named national teacher, one of the things that was so important to me was to go back to the school where it all started, to go back to the New Jersey School for the Deaf and to be there again with that teacher who gave me my first start. I was hoping that maybe we could round up some of the original students because I think, you know, it's funny, when I ask my students, what do they plan to do with their life? Often I'll get answers like, you know, I wanna, I wanna sleep all summer, I wanna work, I wanna, you know. But, but rarely does anybody say, I don't think if ever, nobody says I wanna change a life because that's not something that you plan to do. But, you know, these seven or eight students at the New Jersey School for the Deaf all those years ago, I would not be the National Teacher of the Year if it wasn't for them. I mean, they set me on the path. They have no idea. Mm -hmm. They have no idea. So I think every day, you know, and along the theme of, you know, everybody has something to teach, everybody has something to learn, to just realize that you could be with what you say, with how you act, with how you've, you've you know, given somebody attention that they needed. You could be changing somebody's life, and mm -hmm. you'll, never, you'll never even know about it. And that's one of the greatest things about teaching. In a positive way or in a negative well, way. Well, that's true. And that you do have to be careful. That's right. I mean, everything that we do, you know, and, and that's something that as teachers we have to be very careful about um, in terms of, you know, you always want to make sure that you're validating students yeah. and not, you know, zinging them or throwing some sort of sarcastic comment at them that will stick in their oh, brain. Yeah, ten and, little words sure. that just trickled out of your mouth could oh, destroy them. Right. And, and you have to be very conscious because we are human beings. You know, we're all reactive. We're human beings. But to be very conscious to always, you know, take that deep breath or wait that 24 hours before you want to respond to that student who you had an issue with you know the day before I try not to ever react I try to always you know whether it's stepping out in the hall or taking a deep breath or just telling myself you know I'm gonna need 24 hours on this one and then I'm gonna think of the right way to approach it and turning it into a learning experience that's good advice for marriage that's oh, a yeah. good advice for <laughs> take that to some, for anything some things required 24 hours and a good night's sleep before I'm sure you, you hear, i'm sure you hear those stories of people who say um yeah i never read a book because my grade school teacher exactly. told me i was a bad reader and i exactly. believed her and exactly. so i never read a book exactly exactly and yeah. unfortunately those stories are there but it has to be a conscious effort but there's also those stories like you say sometimes we don't hear Right. The good positive story is that we don't hear about the Urban Academy in Chicago where every senior is accepted to college. We, right. you know, we only hear about the, the, the drugs in high school exactly. or the bullying or the, or right. the shootings or whatever. So right. it's and great. often when a teacher makes the news, it's for something you know, yeah. underhanded or uh, right. you know, illegal. I mean, rarely you know, the, the celebration and what teachers are doing. So that's what's really great about the Teacher of the Year program is that it, it does kind of draw out those invisible teachers who are just pouring their hearts into kids every day. Uh, what else did you learn from your experience in teaching at the New Jersey School for the Deaf? I mean, you talked about how, first of all, they put you on this path, they put you on this journey of wanting to be a teacher for the rest of your life. You also talked about how, uh, you, you know, they weren't so concerned about the grade, they were concerned more about the learning, so. The most important thing that I learned was that it, its ability is not disabilities. I try to never use the word disability because of those students. I mean, here were students missing one of their senses and, and sometimes having other issues as well, but they didn't consider themselves handicapped. That was something that society imposes on them, that label. They didn't see themselves as handicapped. They had a language, and I should probably learn it. And they were, <laughs> and you did. And they were happy to teach me, right. and I appreciated that. 
And I think that's one of the things that really changed about my outlook. And I try to catch myself, you know, because it's easy to slip and say disabled or handicapped. It's, you know, there are special needs and there are exceptional people who do amazing things. It's different, but it's not bad and it's not negative. And I learned that from the start. I think that was really important. Another thing that they taught me is that learning has to be relevant. You know, is that, you know, Mrs. Shear, you want us to, to learn all this stuff about physics. Like, why? Really, why? Why, why am I going to do this? And that's a good question. I mean, if you, if you can't answer that question, you should probably ask yourself why you're teaching what you're teaching. Wow. And I don't think we do that enough. You know, and the answer can't be, well, because it's on the test at the end of the year. Because I said so. Or, right, because I said so. I'm the boss. And because the state curriculum says we have to. It's It's got to be something. So... We actually went. I'm waiting for your answer. I, I want to hear it. Yeah, well, we went at the time. You know, here I was teaching them physics and trying to make it relevant. And, you know, we brought out old toys. We brought out Hot Wheels cars. Remember the Hot Wheels cars? Oh, yeah. And we set up track and we looked at the physics of the track. And this was back in the day where, you know, there was film in cameras. You know, nothing was digital yet. Remember those little canisters oh, yeah. with oh, the yeah. gray Drop it in there sure. and set it up. And, and we'd put pennies in and make pendulums. And then, But then we really went all out and we went to Physics Day at Six Flags Great Adventure. Mm. And there's this classic newspaper photo of me with three of my students <laughs> hanging upside down, suspended on a roller coaster. Like the absolute relevance and applications of physics. Of physics wow. You know, and, and my message to students is often, I, I know, realistically, that not many of my students are going to become chemists, physicists. It, it's not it's likely. Not the point. Percentage, it's not the point. The point is to be knowledgeable about, about your world, to appreciate those who do devote their lives to that. Because frankly, if I'm on top of a roller coaster, I want the person who built that roller coaster to be really good at physics. <laughs> you know, so, so you, <laughs> y, y, to have an appreciation that for every time you go on an airplane, mm -hmm. you know, all these behind the scenes engineers, they made that possible for you. And mm -hmm. if nothing else, an appreciation and just an understanding, right. um, but also to tap into the fact that in their own way, they are a scientist. Even if they don't use it, they are a scientist. Right. An appreciation for anything. You know, I, don't, I don't know much about this topic, but I'm so grateful that there are people who are passionate about that topic and who research it. And right. yeah. Because otherwise the world wouldn't spin. Right. Right. You have to have people who are passionate about art. You have to have people who are passionate about engineering. And, and otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a world. Right. So sometimes people will challenge me and they'll say, what's the point of bringing 90 kids into AP chemistry? You know they're not going to be scientists. You know that maybe five of them will. But that's not the point. The point is that they're going to gain these amazing skills and an appreciation and discover things about themselves that they never thought possible. And that's why we need to be careful not to pigeonhole our little children. And let me tell you something funny, when on that, those lines, I actually went to speak with some very little children, kindergarten, first grade, second graders, about science and so forth. And the very first thing I, I did was I stood in front of them and I said raise your hand if you think I look like a scientist. And, you know, not even half the kids raised their hand. They, I don't look like a scientist. Now, why, why would a kindergartner, why would somebody as young as five years old have an opinion, have an, have opinion? an idea? Right. Is it because I'm female? Is it because I had curly hair at the time or because I was wearing a bright pink shirt? I mean, how do those stereotypes become mm. reinforced so quickly. Hmm. You are this, you are not. And one of the things I do in my classroom and with, with any student that I teach is I, I try to um, help them always use I am statements. You know, I am a chemist. I am a writer. I am an artist. I am a leader. I am, you know, whatever. To implant in their minds that you are all these things. And it doesn't matter ultimately what your job winds up being. 
I'm a science teacher and a scientist at heart, but I mean, I am a musician. I grew up in a music household. You know, I am uh, an, an artist in my own way, shall we say. You know, I love theater, so many things that you don't have to just be one thing. Mm. You're all these things. But unfortunately, we do a pretty good job of beating all that out of our children pretty early on. You know, again, I, I, I own schools and, and uh, it's come up in my own mind. And then once I figured it out and got on a good path with it, it will come up often. Like, well, why shouldn't we kick that student out of school? They're probably not going to graduate. They're probably not going to pass their state board. They're probably not going to be a success in the salon industry. So why shouldn't we just kick them out? And, and my response, because I had to learn this myself, we don't know why they're here. We don't know what they're here to learn. Maybe, they're, maybe they've never finished anything in their entire lives. Maybe they're here to learn how to get along with another human being. Maybe they're here because they were never loved and accepted any, any place else, and now we're going to kick them out too? Right. You know, maybe they didn't fit into traditional learning institutions like elementary grade or high school, and, and this is the first place where they finally feel safe. They finally feel like they're not judged. They finally feel, and that doesn't have to be a beauty school. That can be a hair salon. That could be a dentist's office. That can be a, you know, any kind of a business can be that type of a place where everybody's loved and everybody's accepted. And we kick you out of my science class because you're not going to become a successful scientist. I already prejudged that. That's right. Predetermined that you will not be a success and therefore let's kick you out. You know, and you were talking to me earlier about examples of, of you know, finding out things later. Often, many students are not on the traditional path. You know, we have it mapped out. You have to be here by age you know, 12 and here by age 18 and here. And many students are not on that traditional path. And, you know, people will question me. Again, why are you keeping that student in AP chemistry? You know they're not going to pass the test. They will say, you know they're not going to pass the test. And as, what does it matter? I don't, first of all, I don't know that because you never know what students are going to do. Students will surprise you. I don't know. But the test is a three-hour snapshot of, of a very long life. And if, you, if we're going to judge on that basis, for example, my students are going to take their big test tomorrow morning. And, you know, just case in point, I had a student who, yeah, I knew her prognosis was not assured. I knew that. She didn't even want to go take the test. She actually came to me. She said, I think I'm going to be sick. I said, well, let's go do it anyway. I said, you've never done this before. You've got to prove to yourself that you can even do it. So she walked down. She took this big three-hour long test, and, and she did not pass it. Okay, She got a score of two, which is not a passing score on this particular scale. Well, if that's all you look at, well, then she is a failure, and so am I. Right? She didn't pass the test. I didn't do my job. But if you follow her progress, that experience gave her the confidence to go on, physics, biology. She became the first person in her family to go to college. She's majoring in science. So I think you are dead on, absolutely 100% correct, that it's so easy in the moment to want to judge and sort and predetermine. If, if you let people ride their own path, you never know where it's going to wind up. And that could be the one thing that, that gives them that boost to be wherever it is they're going to be. That is so hard for us to do. You know, it is I, hard. I wish it were easier for me to do it that, to just accept people exactly where they are. You know, because again, you and I and other people, we're paid That's right. to give our opinion. We're paid right. to deliver information. Yes. And it's like we want to prejudge that, like, well, why aren't they getting it? Or they should learn it this way, or rather than just letting it go let it go let it's hard it, go. it is hard I and mean, again we are all human beings but it's again as long as you're deliberate and conscious of it I, I think the instances where we we judge people will lessen and lessen okay i know you're not going to believe this but we've already been speaking for over an hour oh my gosh. i feel like i could 
<laughs> talk with you all day. <laughs> oh, I want to start to wrap this up. Sure. And there's some of the things I want to ask you about. So maybe we can kind of, first of all, we, we barely touched on learning types. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that people are different learners. And, and that's such an important message because, again, related to the beauty industry, you could, salon owner, have a haircutting class. There's 20 people in your class and only three are learning. Right. So because maybe they were the three traditional or how the class was taught or structured only spoke to that type of a learner and the other ones were not included. There there, there are different levels or needs for how they learn was not incorporated in the classroom. And so if you can kind of touch on that, and sure. then I'll ask you to my two final questions. Right. One okay? of the things I try to do in my classroom, and we try to encourage all teachers to do, is to try to, within any one lesson, try to incorporate lots of different opportunities for students to learn different ways. So when I'm constructing a lesson, I mean, there are auditory learners. Okay, There are auditory learners who like to process um, that way. But you know, the auditory, the visual, the kinesthetic movement, that's something that I think is often left out. Because you think kinesthetic, you think hands-on. Well, if I sit kids in their seat with a bunch of manipulatives and kits, then they're getting it. A lot of our students need to move. They need to physically be Have up on Have you seen feet. me sitting, sitting here? How, this is like torture right. exactly. for me to oh, sit I know. here well, right me now. Too. I mean, I'm I know. trying not to. You and I to. should be running around this room <laughs> well, right now. It would be a better conversation. One of the things I... <laughs> we really should. That would, that would be a great conversation. One of the things I love about teaching is that it lets me be on my feet all day. And so I can understand that about my students. There are some students who cannot sit still for 90 minutes. They can't. Right. And really, when you start to be conscious of different learning styles, it's really not that difficult. I think at the, at the outset, you're like, oh, well, I can't possibly, you know, and I got to do like 15 different lesson plans all at the same time. It's really not that difficult. It's like, how can I get the, vi- how can I make this visual? How can I put a movement piece? How could I, not everybody has to be doing the same thing at the same time. You know, design an activity that could be done standing up and, and kind of in a rotation walkabout. But yet if you have students who really need that solitude and just want to think about it, let them do that. Sometimes I've noticed that students are not willing to take risks. And I could never understand that. I thought I was going all out. You know, here I'm doing the auditory and the kinetic and the visual, and I'm doing thinking, feeling, and all this stuff, and, and they're still not coming out. And one of the things that my deaf students actually taught me was the, the value of something like a marker board, a dry erase board. And I would ask them to do something, and they'd say, well, can I get a marker board? And they'd, you know, work this incredibly difficult problem. And after watching this for many years, I finally asked, I said, you know, it's the same problem that's like on the paper. It's the same problem that's on the board. Like how is doing it on a marker board make it different? They said, because it's not permanent. Mm -hmm. And it lets me feel that I can, you know, I can jot and I can scribble and I can erase. And so I never thought about that. So I'm I'm always now trying to incorporate non-permanence into a lesson, Mm -hmm. non-permanence for those students who really just need to be free of constraint. It, it, you don't have to look real hard. It takes a little bit of energy, a little bit of, of planning, obviously, to have different lessons. But again, you've got your thinkers, you've got your feelers, you've got your inventors, you've got all these different ways of, of processing information. And actually, I find that when you do, it makes teaching so much richer. Mm. It makes it so much more exciting for everybody, including the teacher. Including you. Including the teacher. I heard somebody say how they did that was they asked people to try on this idea. Mm-hmm. You don't have to buy it. No. Like when you go to the right. store, you're not buying the clothes yet you get to go try them on first right so just try Try on this idea right let me know how it feels right 
And I think a lot of our students have. Oh, I can try been, it on. Yeah, they haven't ever been asked that. Yeah. It's always been, you know, do this, do this, this way. And right. when you introduce a little freedom and choice into the situation, then you really learn some things about your students. Again, one of the misconceptions today is that because students love computers and technology for social purposes, that that's also the way they should learn. And I have students who flat out tell me, I can't learn from a computer. Isn't that funny? I was just with my 12-year-old, no, 13. If I get her age wrong, she's going to hit me. Oh, yeah. My um, goddaughter, uh, Haley. And she was, uh, I sp spent the night at her house. I'd like to you know, spend some time with her. And that's just the easiest way because she's crazy with her schedule. So and she's going to school. She has this huge, big binder. This thing was, and it was colorful. And I was looking through it and everything. I said, do you take that to school every day? She says, yeah. I'm like, well, what about, can't you just do this on the computer? The, you know, I have computers at your school. She's like, no, I don't like it that way. I don't right. learn that way. Right. I need to write it. And it was like, it was every color was in there. And there was mm -hmm. just off on the, on the columns were little pictures that she had drew. And that's how she learns. Right. So, right. so it's, it's a mistake to assume that just because our, our students love computers and phones for social media, it does not automatically follow that that's the way they want wow. to be instructed. What great information. You know, what scares you the most about education system within our country? But then my follow-up question, what, which we'll end on, is what's your hope? What, what brings you pride and hope for what's happening today? You know, what scares me the most is the way we're latching on to technology as to transform. You know, I've been asked, asked questions like, well, why don't we just, what's the point in you teaching 90 students in one classroom? Why don't we just videotape you and broadcast you and you can teach 90,000 students? But, but see, then you lose the connection. Yeah. That is my fear. I mean, again, when my daughter is seven years old, okay, she's got a long way to go. I don't want her. My fear is that she's going to spend the next 10 years looking at a screen. My fear is that she's going to be emailing homework assignments to some entity that we don't even know who that person is and that she's never going to get live feedback and that nobody's ever going to care about her as a person the way that I do. That's why I, I worry about the impersonalization of education. Now, what gives me hope is that I know that people who come into this business do it because they love people. When I say business, I say education, and I use that term very broadly. People come into it because they love people. And that is, is the rock. That is what will root it to the ground, that no matter how the technology continues to change, that there will always be enough of us to make sure that the focus stays on education as human development and people and empowerment. And truly, I, I think that ultimately the human spirit will, will overwhelm and, and keep us all on the right path. Wow. They knew exactly what they were doing, putting you on the road, oh, well. <laughs> giving you the title and the credibility to get out there and share the passion for this. Well, I've really appreciated it. You know, the, the National Teacher of the Year program has been uh, around since 1952. That was the first National Teachers, 1952, from California. So I'm part of a, of a long legacy, actually, of people who, who carry and pass this torch every year. And when you go out as the National Teacher, not about you. It's not about you. It's about everyone. And there are millions, literally. I mean, I think estimated between three and five million teachers, mm. all different backgrounds, all different levels, doing all certain, whether it's cosmetology, kindergarten, chemistry, it doesn't matter. They were all bonded by the same thing and that the role and the job of the national teacher is to speak to that theme nationally and internationally and to do a good job as a spokesperson. 
and that brings me back to my funny story. You, you were talking about your, your niece, was it, or you were? Uh huh. Yeah. My, my goddaughter. And you were saying about getting getting her age wrong. You know, I, as national teachers make mistakes too, because you you opened up this interview by talking about the White House, and as I said, my family got to go with me, so my little girl was sitting right in the front row. I mean, if you watch it on YouTube, it's just an amazing to see her wow. there. And there was a point in my speech where I referenced uh, young children like my daughter, and I motioned to her, and then President Obama looked directly at her, waved. And she, so they caught that on camera. But here's the funny part when he waves, they get her on camera, and then she goes like that. And I know for people who can't see me, she, she put her hand to her head and covered her eyes like, oh, my gosh. And so afterwards, I'm watching this video, and I was like, what happened? I was like, did you just get embarrassed, you know, because the president waved at you? She says, no, you made a mistake in your speech. Oh and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And I'm running through this in my mind, like, did I, what did I say? It was a grammatical error. She says, you told everybody I was five, and I am five and a half. Oh and it was gosh. just this amazing <laughs> moment that, you know, and I realized at that moment I was just about to walk, you know, embark on this year that everybody was going to analyze everything that I said and that I better choose my words very carefully and understand my audience. And Including make sure your daughter was analyzing every word. Absolutely. But uh, it, it really set me on an amazing journey, and I was very fortunate to have the family support that I had because obviously my husband George who was a teacher was a single parent for a year essentially I was on the road 80% of the time and he uh, not only kept teaching but you know took care of Carly and took care of his own you know aging parents and really held down the fort and I'm very oh. grateful it was a great experience this was great this was so easy it was fun I knew that I knew this would be just a great opportunity you know like I said teacher to teacher it doesn't take much. No. You sit down at the table, but I think, again, the job is to bring everybody else in. Everybody's a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not like my club and I'm a teacher and you can't belong to it. I mean, everybody's got something to teach. And uh, I think if we do more, more reaching out and reaching back, we have, a, we have a better shot of achieving what we want for our students. Michelle, brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you.